One way to look at the Buddha's teaching is to see it as um, someone who's trying to help us learn how to live. Because uh, <clears throat> I don't think it's too much of an interpretation to infer from the Buddha's teaching that many, many ways what's being said is you don't know how to live, human race. You intend to generate happiness and well-being for yourself and others, and yet it so often doesn't seem to work out that way. Um, There's suffering instead. And then there's a body of teachings that we have available to us. And then a few centuries of people like ourselves who've been doing this practice, interpreting the teachings, uh, learning from them, and passing on what they've learned to us. So what, <clears throat> what I'd like to talk about a bit tonight is learning how to live and link it with another idea, it's really more a practice, self-knowing. Um, and link it very much to the retreat. I'll, I'll, I hope the terms become a little bit clearer as we go on. When we say, uh, let's say, learning how to live, uh, for me, it brings with it an attitude towards the retreat uh, that's it's one way to look at a retreat. Uh, it's a way that I've found very, very helpful and that uh, it was the first approach to practice that I was ever given many, many years ago. Um, since then, I've practiced in lots of different ways and there are so many different ways to view a retreat. all of which have merit and have strengths and weaknesses. Uh, If you noticed, those of you who are new and have never been on a retreat before, uh, you'll just have to listen in on some of this. But most of us have done lots of retreats or some retreats. When the retreat began, uh, you were informed that uh, you, didn't, you couldn't just pick whatever job you like unless there was a medical reason, that everyone needed to take whatever job was offered. It was just first come, first serve, whoever the job that was there went to you. Why is that? Are we just trying to be mean and make you do things you don't like to do? Because... I hope some of you have gotten jobs that you don't like. That's the whole point. If you all love your job, then we'll have to find some other way. I know it doesn't mean anything to the new people, but all right, what can I do? Um, Because it's part of a view of a retreat uh, that, for me, stands in contrast to other views. Typically, on retreats of this sort, uh, daily life is discussed the last day of the retreat or the evening before you go home. And I'd like to talk about daily life a bit 
now in our first evening, first full day, the daily life of a retreat. Uh, why do that? Towards the end, there's usually, it's very often called an integration talk, where we integrate, where we are given some hints as to how to integrate what we've learned here with what awaits us at home. And this, of course, is directed at lay people. Uh, we're, we have uh, typically, when we leave here, we have jobs, families, school, or we would like to. We'd like to get in a relationship if we're not in one. If we're in one, we'd like to get out of it. Uh, we like our job uh, very much. We're afraid of losing it. Uh, there are children to be brought up. There are, you know, it's just a lot going on. But this is our life. Um, there is a daily life on a retreat. In fact, I would say all there is is life. Uh, a retreat is a slice of life. For example, there's a certain Dharma lingo, retreat lingo, which I was fairly comfortable with for a while. Uh, not anymore. It's sort of uh, the real world is out there. Or sometimes staff and some of us. Uh, when you have time off from your work, I'm going to go into yogi land. This is yogi land, whether you know it or not. And then go back to staff life. You know, it's playful, it's lighthearted. And uh, the real world is other challenges that I just hinted at. You, I, you know them all too well. As far as I can tell, there's just prior to the Buddha, prior to Vipassana, Zen, all the different kinds of Tibetan Buddhism, or anything else, there's life. And uh, this is a real world to me. It has its own challenges, its own fears. And if we could have a perspective, and that's what I'd like to suggest this evening, uh, that applies to wherever you are, so that when you're on retreat, then, of course, retreat calls for certain behavior. To be a yogi here means silence and everything that you're doing. So while we're here, fully giving ourselves over to this. But in the midst of it, we wash ourselves, we eat, we go to the toilet, and although we're, we're not speaking to people officially now and then, you have to perhaps on a yogi job, we affect each other. Retreats are an interesting kind of gathering in that we're alone and together. We're very alone in that we're leaving each other alone in certain ways, but we affect each other. Now, what's often emphasized is the strength of the, the sangha. That is, sometimes you feel insecure or discouraged, and you look around, and there are all these people who are still practicing, and that gives you strength uh, to keep practicing as well. And, of course, that's a major reason for us doing this. But it's not always that. People irritate us as well. We don't like the way they dress, how they walk, uh, how much food they took. It says take one muffin first time around, and they take two. We see it, etc. cetera. Uh, we notice each other, and we have reactions. We can't help it. It's not that we're trying to socialize. It's just that we're alive. So there's, life goes on. And in this form, of course, it's very different than when we leave here. Silence is emphasized and all the obvious features of a retreat. So you live wholeheartedly, 100%.
retreat life. Uh, to me, that's just, it's one slice of life. When we leave here, it's the very same guideline. Except the challenge now becomes what's next. If it's your family, then fully enter into family life. Let go of the retreat. If it's a work situation, let go of the retreat. Fully enter into that. And so life becomes a, a succession of moving from now to now to now to now, if you want to be a little more precise, from here and here now to here now to here now to here now. It's just life. Very often um, in Cambridge or elsewhere, someone will come in for an interview and I'll say, how's your practice going? And the person will say, oh, really, not so good these last few weeks. I had hardly any time to sit. I said, no, I asked you how your practice was, not how your sitting was. Sitting is one kind of practice, precious, invaluable. That's why we're here. But if you can begin to see that life and practice can be the same thing, that it isn't you're trying to do two things at the same time and, and you feel stilted and awkward and contrived and artificial, uh, at first that may be so. And that's what I'd like to suggest. The, the approach that we're taking is to view life that way. There's just life. Life in the form of sitting in silence a lot, etc. Now, learning how to live... suggests that there's room for improvement. We don't really know how to live, and that's in part why we've come here. And how do you learn how to live? Well, there are teachings. There are formal teachings. Some of you have read books, lots of them. There are talks. You've heard some of the uh, principles of Dharma. There are techniques and methods. You've been getting one since last evening. Um, but how is that learning how to live? Well, there's some changes that go on. That is, if you're uh, practicing dharma and paying attention to what's happening, it's, there's an attitude, I would suggest, in this whole approach. The attitude is to approach whatever is happening to you with the intention to understand rather than to judge. Now, understanding here doesn't necessarily mean to intellectualize. To begin with, there may be, there will be, there is. There is a lot of conceptual reflection, intellectual reflection, and that can be useful. We live and then we, re- we reflect on what was that about, or we see something. And, but then uh, the deepest kinds of learning that I'm talking about has to do with the direct and clear seeing of what's happening to us. And from this point of view, The world exists to set us free. That sounds strange. That is, it's an attitude, of course. That is, whatever happens to you can be related to uh, to help you get free as a human being. Free of what? Of suffering. Of living in in repetitive, compulsive ways that have proven to not be uh, fulfilling, fruitful. And so we're trying to learn our way out of ways of behavior that don't seem to work and perhaps replace it with ways of living that, are, that improve our ability to live fully. Let's start really small. What, what, take this job stuff. 
I have a whole uh, archives of people who didn't like jobs. And I'm just going to take one today. I won't use the oral surgeon. Many of you have heard that about 20 times. <laughs> See what I mean? I can just say oral surgeon. I can skip that. We can just move on. But there's some who... I'm going to give a, a different one. The vacuum cleaner. Have I used that one yet? Okay, let's say you've been... You, you come in today, you register, you're all enthusiastic about coming here, getting away from the busyness and everything in life. Uh, you can't wait. Country, beautiful. You have very little to do. Meals are taken care of. Everything's taken care of. You have your own room. And, but there's a yogi job. Okay, that's all right. Uh, your job, oh, you're vacuuming. Vacuuming, I hated that. My mother made me vacuum. I couldn't stand it. Years of vacuuming. Mine was dishes. My sister and I alternated. It took me years to learn how to just do the dishes. Okay. And so the practice would be whatever it is you're doing, do it wholeheartedly. You've heard that. Give yourself over fully. <laughs> okay. Uh, give yourself over fully uh, to the particular activity. That's practice. Do it in an undivided way. Okay, so let's say you draw vacuuming. It's not to do an impersonation of the happy vacuumer. <laughs> uh, it's rather, let's say to begin with, you start to vacuum and you feel the resistance. You feel the mind just wanting to think about other things. The mind already thinking about the walk it's going to take around the loop. Perhaps even old unpleasantness comes up. That's all the stuff of practice. And that's what I mean uh, by uh, how life can help liberate us. You have an opportunity there. It's not to just overwhelm what's in our way and do it, and, and uh, uh, do an impersonation of being the ideal vacuumer, but rather to see, although outwardly you can do the job perfectly, the carpet is clean or whatever your job is that there's resistance to, and yet you're not intimate with what's happening. You're divided. Part of you is somewhere else. The practice is to be intimate with what we're doing. And if we can learn how to vacuum, and you can, but in order to do that, it's not by overpowering the resistance so much as experiencing it gently. And that's self-knowing. That's what I mean by self-knowing. Uh, and self-knowing doesn't happen only on the cushion. Uh, self-knowing happens in action. Actually, it's all action to me. Here's what I mean by self-knowing, and why make it self-knowing rather than self-knowledge. The Buddha talks a great deal about being a lamp unto ourselves, taking responsibility for our own life. Our own misery comes from our own heart, unexamined mind. And our own happiness comes from there as well. And so much of what we're doing is learning how to look inside, how to develop, uh, uh, to come to, and we're told we have tremendous potential, tremendous joy and peace, real peace, profound peace inside us. And we're wasting our life, we're spending so much of our life uh, frittering around the surface like water bugs. And we're learning how to look at that, to see that. It's not pleasant necessarily. And so the vacuuming in one sense is trivial, but in another sense you see how the past has a hold over us. 
And self-knowing is, only happens in the active present. Self-knowledge is an accumulation. Knowledge is the past. And <clears throat> some of you won't like this. We'll, let's talk a bit about self-knowing. Uh, it's not you. It's uh, all of us. Don't we love our story? Self-knowledge is about the story. Adding a new chapter. My first retreat. I was silent for seven days. How many parties are you going to tell milk that one for? Seven days, really? How did you do it? Weren't you bored? You know, sometimes, sure. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, self-knowledge is something you accumulate and you add to the story of me and mine starring me. How I used to be, how I think I am now, how I will be in the future. Constant revisions going on, uh, future chapters being envisioned, uh, and we live for that. We get wounded. What gets wounded? It's me. So it's all, it's the story of me. This isn't that. Self-knowing happens in the active present. It's the clear seeing of what's happening, and that's the end of it. It's, it has no more value. Self-knowledge is you add it to the archives. It's the past. And I'm not saying... Now you have to, uh, in a sense, a self-inflicted lobotomy. You have no past. If you meet people, you can talk about your past. But it's a matter of being free. Or, uh, and also understanding how much the past, how much of our life, which we think is spontaneous, is uh, filtered through the past. It's, we're living in the shadow of yesterday. So much of what we think is, I'm really seeing what's happening we're seeing it through yesterday, through our particular life. The joys and the sorrows, the wounds and the successes, which are all there. Self-knowing, as we are developing it, is when the mind is very, very clear. It has no past. It has no future. It's like a clear mirror. Now, I'm not saying the quality of our attention is like that to begin with. The, the mirror is marked over with preferences, and so forth. But let's go back to the, the vacuuming. If you can really just vacuum, and while you're doing it, it's not that you have to stop in the middle and take a look at your mind. Uh, with practice, you can live your life and also be uh, sensitive, attuned uh, to the reactions that are coming about. Life keeps stimulating reactions that we have about what's happening, about who we are, about what's going on. And as we see it, though, we take the power out of it. When you start to see what's happening, it's not to deny anything, quite the contrary. Our practice is the practice of liberation. If we grasp onto something, typically stuff we like, or we push things away, typically stuff we don't like, we're, in this way of looking at things, we're enslaved. Liberation is when we can meet it without... Uh, either just receiving it seeing it with the intention to understand rather than to judge we've had a lot of practice judging now when the mind starts judging fine just see that now some of this should be quite familiar to, to those of you who are who have been in Vipassana for a while or Zen or Tibetan stuff 
All that I'm adding is please bring it into daily life because that's where most of our life is lived. And there's a daily life here as well. If you're in staff, certainly there is. But for us too, even in seven days we have a little community that's developing. And our, we have reactions. And it's not to make a fetish of it, but you can stay attuned to the reactions as you move through the day. If you get that going, and just the self-knowing includes every aspect of your life, how you dress, how you eat, how you wash, if suffering comes up, how you relate to it. For example, dukkha, you've heard that term. Uh, Most, for all I know, all of us come to meditation because we're suffering. It's a wonderful, probably the best motive to come to meditation from. But then we're asked to look at our suffering. We don't like that part. I came here to get rid of my suffering. And we perhaps we come with a notion of what meditation is, is perhaps more for the new people, I don't know, of being focused on bliss and peace and all the things we've read in the Buddhist books. And Based on my experience, they're real, but so is the other. Both are real. We have a profound inheritance just by being human inside that's free of culture. It has nothing to do with where you were born, how old you are, what gender you are, what your weight, height, uh, political persuasion, on and on. It has nothing whatsoever to do with that. Nothing. And then, of course, there is our life. Each of us has a story. So the practice is working with both. But we're learning how to relate to the, the kind of mechanical productions, reactions, reactivity of the mind, which we've taken to be us for a long time. And the instructions, if it's new to you, are radical. They're asking you to, to watch it, to watch fear, the energy that we call fear. And as you watch it, you may start to learn about it. You may see that the fear grows out of the soil of thinking, that you made up something that's going to happen. Just uh, imagining. And then the fear becomes real. And then it affects uh, the body. And before you know it, you have a, a lot going on. But you can see that. And we, we can free ourselves from our own prisons that we make. In other words, the mind, liberation is from yourself, from me too, from myself. Okay, so if here we have a protected environment, <clears throat> uh, I don't know if this is true, but I think there's a good chance that selectively there are probably a lot of kind people here. Uh, probably we have similar political views about the war and the president. We like vegetables, organic ones. <laughs> or as you're among friends, it's safe. What better chance to begin to learn how to pay attention as to how you live? When you come into the hall, just sit, of course. When you do your yogi job, just do your yogi job and learn from it. Because what happens is, typically... Uh, the, the mind has a mind of its own. And so when we're eating, the mind will... You don't know what the mind's going to do because you don't own it. But 
we can begin to see what's going on. As we see, we take the power out of it, and then there's 100% eating, 100% whatever it is. The walking, it's for, some of you are doing yoga in the yoga room. Try doing yoga this way. Forget about temporarily at least chakras, nadis, and give up the hope that you're going to be on the cover of Yoga Journal. <laughs> you're not going to make it. Sorry. Maybe a few of you will. And do it in the same spirit that you do walking meditation. Just do each asana mindfully, wholeheartedly. It's the same practice. So what is being suggested here is that during the seven days, of course the star of the show is the sitting. But there's a lot of, a lot of other things going on as well. And if you can practice that so that you take each activity in its turn, give yourself over to it. And then when it's over, exhale it, let it go. Move on to the next, and of course, watch what happens. Uh, intimacy of practice is one way of talking about enlightenment. A great Japanese master was asked, what is enlightenment, what is, uh, what is all of this? And he said, it's being intimate with all things. Of course, first and foremost with yourself. Learning how to live begins and ends with you and me. We have to learn how to live with ourselves. Out of that comes all the benefit of living with others. It's not first you do this and then you do that. It's simultaneous. It's all going on. Here you have a wonderful opportunity to spend a lot of time inside. What is thinking when we engage in thinking? It seems to get in the way so much. We don't know much about thinking. We're too busy doing it. Probably most of us are not living thinking. We're good at it. We've never really thought about thinking. And we have in an unexamined way, believed our thoughts, which propel us into action, some of which doesn't turn out so well. But here, let's say uh, the instructions are so simple, be with the breath, in, out, in, out, in, out. So what, what's the Buddha suggesting here? By the way, now this may be taken for granted by some of you, uh, but a focused, concentrated mind, in other words, this first meditative exercise uh, using breathing, and some of you using a few different objects, that's fine. That's to develop a real focused attention. Uh, you can't do anything in life well without focused attention. It's not just about insight meditation. The quality of your life has everything to do with your ability to listen, to pay attention, not just to yourself, but to whatever is happening to you. And we know it's a problem. So, so much talk about when the mind is agitated. Lots of pharmaceuticals to help us. I'm not saying don't. That's up to you. Or it's dull. And yet, in our culture, there are a lot of wonderful things, but we, this capacity to pay attention, even though it's so central to human life, and certainly if you want to get free, there's no way around it. Um, we don't know much about it. Uh, William James talked a bit about being um, uh, the importance of being focused, being able to focus attention. But he also confessed, he was in a famous talk to educators, to teachers, that he didn't know of m many ways to help improve that. He didn't even know if it could be improved. 
there wasn't a view of the plasticity of attention. Well, the contemplative heritage in Buddhism, in, in Hinduism, the yogas, goes back thousands of years. Highly developed technology. It's not new. And the mind can be trained. It is plastic. You're not fated to be either agitated or dull so much of the time. And you're doing it. We're, there's training. People like yourself, we're all doing it. We learn something. Okay, now officially, officially our practice is concentration. We're coming back to the breathing again and again and again. But of course you've noticed that your mind is taken away from the breathing also, perhaps again and again and again. If you look closely, you may see that a good deal of the time it's taken away by thoughts about the future or memories, psychological time. So although officially it's a concentration exercise, just to come back again and again, how can you not learn some things about yourself without even trying? Uh, I've... uh, seen it in myself and with others. Some people uh, are distracted tremendously by their, the future, either, either a wonderful future or a horrible one. And others are just stuck in the mud of the past, either a horrible past or a wonderful one. It, functionally, it doesn't matter. They're all getting in the way of coming back to the breathing. But you can't help but learn about yourself Uh, if you pay attention as you move through the day and everything that you do here or anywhere else, but we're here. Now, this self-knowing, self-knowing is something that happens in a given moment. There's a a seeing of your relationship to the vacuum, for example, vacuuming. And then that's its value. Unless you want to store it up. Now, if you want to fill up a notebook of your insights, which I strongly advise you not to do, you can come back home with a book full of insights, spiral notebook, it's all worthless. Maybe not worthless, but it's not. Uh, the value is in the clear seeing in that moment. It's a moment of freedom, of clear seeing. And learning can go on, especially as that ripens and becomes mature. William James doubted if it was possible to be, have a focused, or others, not just a focused attention. But we know and I'm not saying you have to do this. We know that in this, in uh, jhanic training, people can get concentrated for hours without, uh, with a mind not moving. That isn't liberation, but that's a human skill that can be developed, and it can be, if employed correctly, very, very, very helpful. But some degree of improving our ability to pay attention is needed if you're going to take a look at your life, which you know that the instructions open up, but even before they do, there's always life. Where else are you going to be? If you go to a cave, it's inside of you. There's no escape. Wherever you go, there you are again. That comes from, not from John Kabat-Zinn, it comes from Buckaroo Banzai. He had it first. Worst movie ever made. But I heard that line in it, and it blew me away. And the rest of the film is just awful. But I walked out. Wherever you go, there you are again. 
Far out, man. So here you are. Larry's on retreat. Michael's on retreat. You are. But it's still, it's a here. It's a now. And it just keeps being now. There's nothing else. Now, by now, by now. Now, self-knowing, when you start paying attention, remember, it's in the active present. Some of what you learn is going to be quite familiar, uh, similar to what you might learn in psychotherapy, uh, similar to what any person would learn just by being alive. We pick up some things as we live. Uh, you pay attention as to how you eat, how you, and here this, of course, would encourage that. Or staying awake throughout the day. And in this sense, self-knowing is finding out who you are to begin with. And that's, we're comfortable with that. Because the me wants to find out who it is. It loves that, that project. It's very happy with it. But as practice goes on, you'll see that self-knowing is really finding out who you aren't. And you, you aren't any of it in a profound way. It's not to make little of the everyday things that we learn about how to live effectively, happily, gracefully, and so forth. The refinements in living that come about by paying attention, if you are willing to learn. And for me, uh, the practice, so much of the energy in the practice, however you get it, I'm all for it, but I'm just saying it for me, uh, it's been through learning. Uh, Learning uh, generates energy. When you learn something, it doesn't have to be big stuff. You just suddenly, hmm, you see something, you learn something. Uh, it feels good. The mind loves to learn. But here we're learning to let go, to let go, to let go. Uh, and again, Dogen, a great Japanese master, uh, puts it so beautifully when he says, to study the Buddha Dharma is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be awakened by all things. Sometimes the translation is instead of study, it's learn. To learn the Buddha Dharma is to learn the self, learn about yourself. But to learn about yourself is to forget about yourself. It's not amnesia, it's just, it's what our practice is. You watch it all come and go, come and go. Uh, And at a certain point, you start seeing there isn't a real need to identify with everything that turns up in the mind. That's our habit, powerfully conditioned. And that's where our suffering comes from. But as we watch it all arise and pass away, arise and pass away, and one of the main values of seeing impermanence and Nietzsche is to help us let go. Everyone knows, and everyone has known long before the Buddha, that everything's impermanent, life is impermanent, constant change. I think perhaps what the Buddha did that was so original and powerful is to turn that lawfulness on yourself, to see it in your own mind, moment by moment. There are all kinds of philosophy and poetry about change, the vanity of man in the face of the fact that we don't have forever on this strange planet. But the Buddha is asking us not to just philosophize in some abstract way, but to begin to see in the way our own mind behaves, the way everything is happening, 
and to be able to live fully in the present moment and to let it go. Otherwise, there will be suffering because in a changing world, if you get fixated, it's dancing to the wrong music. How can, that, how can you enjoy that? You were dancing to a foxtrot. You can see my generation, I'm dated. Do people still foxtrot? They do, does it come back? Great. One, two, three, one, two. My Aunt Esther tried to teach me. Okay. And suddenly, uh, rock and roll free, free movement comes on, or ballroom dancing of some kind. If you're still fixated, how can life be fulfilling? Moreover, we're living through ideas of what's happening to us, through ideas of who we are. We're not an idea. That's indirect. It's not touching. And our practice is to bring us into intimate, direct, naked contact with our experience and to broaden our capacity to receive, to widen it, to receive our experience till we can get to the, I don't want to say till, but uh, so that more and more we're able to be at home with our own experience without editing this out and grabbing onto that, just being at home with cleaning a toilet or vacuuming, if that's what life presents to you. It's not that you have to do it. There are trainings where in Japan I saw something quite remarkable in a, a, a one Zen monastery. In a way it's laughable, but the idea under, underlying it I thought is what we're really talking about. Definitely the doing things wholeheartedly was emphasized. And that if you think, some of you who are perhaps new to this, think that you see people bowing. I don't know if any of you feel awkward by that. This isn't bowing. Those in that monastery, I saw someone bow to the toilet. I'm serious. Bow to your cushion. In other words, it's gratitude. Everything is helping me get free. Everything. But, of course, that's because you see it that way. The world is here to help you get free. Not that it's uh, going to free you. It's that it's pushing buttons. And you have an opportunity to see what those buttons are and to get free. Your reactions are coming from your life history, your conditioning, my conditioning. It'll go on forever unless we meet it fully, receive it in a non-judgmental way. And that's what we're learning how to do. Hey, step number one is we're emphasizing for a few days. Clearly, some of you have been practicing for a while. You know, you're doing whatever is best for you. But the formal instructions in the hall are going to be about exclusive attention to the breathing. That developing that quality, it's not just concentration. We're developing the ability to look carefully at a breath. Then uh, when we open the field of attention to include the rest of our life, uh, that's going to be helpful, challenging, because then we're being asked to look not just at our breathing, but the wide variety of emotions, fears, resistances, conflicts. And then the question is, is it possible to get free of all that? The answer of the Buddha is yes, but you'll have to test it and see if it's so.
if this perspective sinks in, when the time comes to leave here, uh, it's, you don't really need to integrate anything with anything. You need to move on. When you leave this behind, you move to what's next. And there may be lingering notions and uh, effects of having been here in silence, but you practice with them. And so um, a retreat's a slice of life. It's as real as your work situation in its own way. And we'll get to relationship, and it's relationship here meaning not just intimate or long-term, relationship perhaps next time as a primary source of self-knowing and freedom, as a mirror to help us see ourselves and to let go, to learn the Dharma. Buddha Dharma is to learn the self, learn about the self. To learn about the self is to forget about the self and to be awakened by all things. If that doesn't make sense to you yet, if you're very new, it's a seed. Leave it alone. Don't worry about it. Can we have a few moments of silence, please? May we all continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear seeing free us. <laughs>